Hello there, friends. On today's interview, I have the chance to speak with fiery Irishmen living abroad in Japan, as well as IDW critic Chris Cavanaugh. As I always like to espouse, I think it's important to look at different perspectives and views in order to sort of sharpen what it is we believe, what we think about the world, and whatnot. So I like to speak with people who are on the more critical side of things I might tend to sympathize with. So I decided it might be a good idea to chat with Chris. Things have been a little bit heated recently. I did this video with him about two weeks ago, but I think it still stands. The, uh, the things that are said are an important side to look at and perspective, and I am curious as to what you all think about it. So without further ado, here is my interview with Chris. Yeah, so I want to kind of discuss your area of expertise slash also um, talk about the original reason why I wanted to have you on. You critique the uh, IDW folk slash anti-SJW folk. I want to get to that, but I was telling you earlier how I was looking at your pinned tweet, and the, which is a thread of uh, you talking about the work you're doing in Japan on rituals, and I thought that was way more interesting. So <laughs> I want to first start off talking about that, and I think we can connect it. So, um, so you're specializing in ritual in Japan. So if we could just talk about like where you're teaching and I guess how you got those appointments and how you came to be interested in ritual. Sure. Uh, so I, I have a dual appointment, which is I'm an associate professor of ecology in Rikyo University in Tokyo. Um, and prior to that, uh, I was my PhD was in anthropology, kind of the cognitive anthropology area. And now I have a dual appointment where I teach psychology at Rikyo and my research is uh, with the Institute of Cognitive and Evolutionary Anthropology in Oxford. Right. Um, so I do the research for ritual mainly for that appointment and teach psychology at, uh, at the university in Tokyo. Okay, but you're studying, so you're, you're studying like the Japanese ritual or ritual behavior for your appointment at Oxford? Yes, mainly. mainly? Uh, so okay. I, yeah, I, I started out in kind of study of religions and social anthropology area, and then moved to cognitive anthropology and kind of more quantitative approaches. Um, and then I was always interested in doing research on Japan culturally and socially. Uh, but when I started studying about religion and ritual, Japan is a really useful environment for examining those kind of topics because you have a you have a country where there is a lot of ritual. There's a lot of uh, temples and shrines and festivals and but unlike the West or or even like the Middle East or most other places, you have a lot of rituals, but you don't have a lot of kind of uh, strong belief or identification as a religious person. So 
it's it's this nice separation or quite unique separation of a lot of ritual and not a lot of strong uh, religious identity. Okay, so can we can we talk a little bit about what? So I think people have a good idea. Most listening would have a good idea of what religiosity looks like in the West, even if they're not practicing. So you know, go to church on Sunday, celebrate Easter, Christmas. You know, you can you can culturally mm. you can. But wait, actually, you mentioned about being Catholic from a Catholic background. And you did mm. mention that there is a bit of a ritual feeling there. Yes, yes. So, so I'm, can we compare that a bit with Japan and the similarities? Yes, yes, I think so. I, so I I was raised Catholic. I'm not like a believing Catholic, but, right. you know, I I think Daryl Brian, the comedian, said that, you know, being a, a strong atheist just makes you a bad Catholic. And that's... <laughs> Okay. I think that's the way my parents would see it. So, okay. uh, yeah, I I went, you know, to mass every week until I was 18. And still, when I go back at Christmas or whatever, I'd, I'd go to mass. So Catholicism and like Irish Catholicism was part of my upbringing. And that was kind of what you suggested when I was learning about uh, when I was doing study of religion as my undergraduate. There was this critique that uh, researchers brought these assumptions that were associated with, with Protestant Christianity, that there should be a kind of, uh, there should be doctrinal knowledge and a personal relationship with God and uh, that you should, people should have a kind of understanding of why they are doing things themselves. Okay. But as Catholics know, or, you know, have experienced, there's there's quite a lot of ritual aspects where it, the point is the ritual. The, the right. It's not necessarily knowing what, you know, all of the individual aspects mean. And the important thing is doing the ritual, going to mass or saying the prayer. Right. So I find the, the kind of a lot of the things in East Asian religions or in uh, in in kind of different areas that just weren't associated with monotheism, that the ritualistic aspect seems quite familiar with me, that it's fine for people to do rituals and not understand what they mean. Right. Uh, because, yeah, right. that, I'm not throwing shade on Catholics, but at least in my experience, you know, lots of people are not that interested in interrogating what the deep theological meaning is of the like specific rituals they just do it uh, and that's normal right so those are sort of points in western i christianity slash religion slash i guess specifically catholicism that relates to that you can see as a similarity to the ritual that you can find in i guess eastern religions but you're specifically focusing on Japan. So, but that's a good, I think, uh, touching off point for people in the West to sort of have a visual like, oh, okay, I, I you know, even if, like, I, I'm Protestant, but I, I've heard of mass and I have heard of confession. And I mean, I, I actually have, mm. I have a Christian, a degree in Christian studies and, and a minor in Christian history. So I do know a lot of that stuff, but mm. I know virtually 
nothing about Japanese ritual. So that's a good idea, I think, to relate that that over. And I, I, I mean, I didn't come up with it. I saw it on your thread. You mentioned it to someone. So, um, yeah. but but that's good to kind of relate that over. So, so the biggest difference between, I guess, Western Protestant sort of belief versus Eastern ritual, is it orthodoxy versus orthopraxy? Is that what you said? Yes, that that's something I emphasize. Some people probably would disagree, but okay. uh, I think it's a meaningful distinction that traditions which are focused more on practical ritual performance belief is still there because you know you have systems with deities and you know giving blessings and karma or all these things but the important thing is the practice and mm. the uh, more so than the belief uh, versus or orthodoxic religion where it it is very focused on what you believe and what the correct doctrinal interpretation is uh yeah, placing an emphasis on belief. So I think that distinction is useful, but it's if you take it too far and imagine that like no one in Japan cares anything about belief and like all of the people in the West are don't have any, you know, they want to know what every element of every ritual means. No, it, okay. it's like a continuum. But the, there's still when you when you look at the two kind of systems, or you know groupings of traditions, I think you can see a clear distinction between the two of them. Okay. Uh, and, and so it's a useful framework, but it, it's not like a hard dichotomy. Right. Yeah, I think that I liked the um, the stats that you gave about the wording of question about religion versus mm. the way that they sort of just altered the phrasing a little bit. Can you go in? Can you go into that a little bit, explaining um, how at, at first glance, looking at these sort of, I guess, they were worded by Westerners, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know who worded them, but they were worded poorly to get the result to, and, and produced kind of a, a look of a sort of atheist state, but it's not really. Can you explain yes. that? Yeah, so the, a lot of the questions in like large cross-cultural surveys about religion and belief tend to ask if people believe in God or uh, or identify as Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, you know, whatever the tradition may be. And the, in Japan and uh, some other East Asian cultures as well, the, the association with, like, believing in God specifically is usually associated with the kind of Christian concept of like a creator God or the Christian God specifically. Mm. So if you ask that, because people are not usually talking about that kind of thing, they assume that you're interested in, you know, are they Christian or uh, do they believe in the Christian God? And uh, if you ask them about their identity, like most people in Japan do not have a very clear self-identity as a specific religious group. So when someone dies, they will find out which temple their household is affiliated with because that's the temple that will 
do the service for the deceased. And that is often the point where people find out which Buddhist sect they're technically, you know, affiliated with. Oh. Um, and but even setting that aside, there is no prescription to not attend Shinto festivals or to not have a Christian themed wedding or so it's there's much less of an emphasis on exclusive devotion to a specific tradition and where there is that devotion to a specific tradition it tends to be either Christian converts or people who belong to new religious movements or you know who are quite devout people so ordinary people will not really strongly self-identify as religious. If you force them to, they will probably say Buddhist. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that they have very strong Orthodox Buddhist beliefs. Right. Just that that's the that's the closest uh, kind of identity that comes to mind because that's where funerals will be or blessings. Um, but but that doesn't fit with so well with the kind of the system in the US or the UK or you know Europe in general where people see religions as fundamentally exclusive even if there's connections mm -hmm. and that it wouldn't make sense for apart from a new age person to be you know attending a mosque and then going to a church and then right. like having a you know a shinto wedding or that kind of thing but but that's completely unremarkable here and right. uh, i i i have a good example okay. of the distinction um so there was an american professor who visited the lab when i was based in hokkaido in northern japan and we took him out to see these kind of traditional houses they have this kind of museum of old houses of japan in a park and in one of the buildings there there were uh, a buddhist altar for deceased relatives and there was a shinto shrine like kamidana and butsudan they're called uh, and these are quite common things in old houses you won't find them in you know modern apartments in tokyo usually mm. um but in traditional homes in the countryside you'll usually have both and the the American researcher, who was a quite famous psychologist, was saying, you know, what's that? What's this? So we explained, oh, that's a Buddhist altar, or oh, that's a Shinto uh, shrine. And then he was like, but both in, in the, the same, same house. And yeah. Then, like, yeah, there isn't a clear distinction. And he, he found this very, you know, strange. And then he asked the uh, Japanese researcher who was with us, a guy called Shuhei, um, so did, do you have these in your house? And Shuhei said, no, but my, my parents do, you know, back in our home. And then he said, okay, so so which one do you believe is correct? And Shuhei, you know, thought, because he hadn't really thought about this very clearly before. And then he was like, uh, maybe neither, none of them. And then the, the researcher was kind of surprised and said, what? And he said, oh, okay, well, maybe both. Both, so he's probably. like, you didn't like my answer, so I'll uh, neither, but both, whatever you want. Yeah, like, yeah, but yeah, that maps quite neatly onto the issue with the questions that you know, it tries to force the system in Japan into this monotheistic exclusive framework, right. and that's not how it functions. Uh, and people aren't thinking so much 
about the you know that there is a contradiction so and it isn't because they you know they're just not self-reflective or that kind of uh that that kind of contradiction never occurs it's more that there isn't a clear contradiction in the systems really it's both and mm -hmm. for them exactly so, yeah so that's called is it syncretism Syncretism is the kind of mixing of traditions, and Japan definitely has syncretic, uh, like mixture between Buddhism and Shinto traditions. Right. And, and actually, when it's le it became less common because they were kind of officially separated during the, pretty sure it was during the Meiji when the government, you know, became more nationalistic and wanted to say promote the Japanese things and. Buddhism was actually seen as the kind of foreign right, uh, religion right. for them from China. Okay. Okay. But, but prior to that period, and I think historically there was a separation as well, but the, the, it was quite common for shrines and temples to be combined. Mm. And for the, the Buddhist priests would say uh, that the Shinto deities were enshrined in the temple so that they could learn Buddhism. So they were kind of incorporated within okay. the system. And, and these, these kind of shrine temple complexes still exist. So I did some research on an island in uh, uh, Miyajima Island, it's called. And, and there was a shrine inside the Buddhist temple. So the arrangement still persists, but it's just not so common anymore. Okay. Why is it not common anymore? Because the government... Oh, because the government more, didn't like it, and it's yeah, still like that? It, it, so, no, no. After, you know, all restrictions that... Uh, any restrictions kind of towards promoting Shintoism as the official religion went away when World War Two ended. Um, right. But, but even when the government did have a lot of control and, you know, officially they were separate, you can't undo hundreds of years of overlap so easily. Right. So it it still remained in some places and there's still the kind of uh, intuitive overlap in a lot of the functions and uh, they're complementary systems in, in a lot of the way that they function in Japan. There's a, there's a phrase like born Shinto, die Buddhist uh, because lots of the rituals from birth are at Shinto shrines and lots of the rituals or all funeral rituals are associated with Buddhism. Oh, okay. So I don't know if you'll be able to answer this and actually maybe this is what you're trying to answer in your research. I don't know. But why, why is it so different from us? Like for me, I am, I want to know why I want to ask the questions that, that, reached researcher friend of yours that was there said but wait why do you not question if these you believe both or none like i want to know like I, my natural western mind wants to dissect it to be like what <laughs> do i believe but why are we so different then well i i don't know that it necessarily is because people are that different i think it's more to do with that if you come from a Christian or monotheistic background, like with Abrahamic religions, Islam or uh, Judaism or Christianity, that that colors what you see as the default 
for religion. Religion is like this. It's like the things I know. But there's plenty of the world where that wasn't the dominant history. Right. So trying to work out, you know, so why isn't it like what our baseline assumption is? Because Christianity wasn't the baseline assumption all over the world or, you know, the, or any of the Abrahamic religions. So in countries where Buddhism was dominant or, uh, you know, Hinduism, uh, all the different varieties, the the kind of baseline assumptions often don't fit the Christian model. Mm -hmm. But it teasing out, you know, why it's it's hard because it isn't like you can say, well, all of the countries started with Christianity and then they, you know, they diverged in these interesting ways. No, they all had kind of different systems emphasizing different things. And it, it isn't the case that like Buddhism and Shintoism, uh, like I'm, I'm also aware of, you know, all the anthropologists that will be shouting that these things aren't real coherent traditions. They're multiple traditions and interacting <laughs> and Western kind of implied constructs that, you know, uh, but setting that we'll aside, move those voices away for the purposes of this podcast. Yes. My, my social anthropology background is always like pinging at the back of my okay, mind okay. saying, you know, no, 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 don't say that. <laughs> but, but it isn't the case that there's been no conflict between like, uh, Shinto traditions and Buddhist traditions or, or different, different, uh, indigenous movements okay. in, in the history of Japan. There's been prohibitions against, you know, one or the other, and not just in recent history. And there's been rulers who advocate like specific sex and the sex compete. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so it, it makes it hard to speak with like, you know, sweeping generalities, because at times in history, those things that are very similar. And a good example is, there's a, a sect of Buddhism called Pure Land Buddhism, which is a very big sect in Japan and like across East Asia. And the traditional kind of Western concept of Buddhism is that, you know, it's, it's tried to say, oh, it's a philosophy, not a religion. Mm -hmm. And they don't really have the supernatural beliefs. And, and generally that is only true of the Western concept of Buddhism. Okay. Um, that, that's not the case like throughout history or in most Buddhist countries, you know, it very much is a religion. Um, okay. Of course, it has philosophical aspects, but so does Christianity or Islam or any of the, uh, you know, major traditions. But, but this Pure Land tradition, the focus is on accepting the kind of promise of uh, Amida Buddha. I, I'm pretty sure I got this right. Uh, Amida Buddha's promise to save all, uh, all sentient life by having them be reborn in a pure land. So the thought is, this world is too corrupt. We're in the kind of end stage. You can't be reach enlightenment uh, here. You have to be reborn in the pure land to get there. And for that to happen, you have to have faith in Amida's promise and kind oh. of recite these uh, mantras or, or the start of sutras. And that will increase your merit and you'll be reborn in a kind of heavenly land where you all you can focus on doing is learning 
the like Buddhist law and and then become enlightened. So that's a very you know salvation focused concept about mm. faith and belief. Yeah, the, the faith. The, yeah. So yeah. Yeah, and that's not the way people think about Buddhism, but right. it's but it's a major Buddhist tradition. Right. Why do it? Okay, it feels to me kind of okay. You can tell me what the real answer is, but I'm gonna venture. Uh, I guess I wonder if the West, the West's view of Buddhism is a sort of atheistic-ish sort of we like the meditation and the thought because I'm sure there is philosophy in Buddhism. It just isn't all that it is. And we yes. like to have the thought. But not and the meditation and then get rid of there's tons of gods in buddhism right yeah yes that, so, I, I know this from watching like anime like that's why i know no well <laughs> like, that's that's not a bad source in many respects right? for you and know demons getting... like demons and stuff and like the gods combat the demons anyway yeah no you're completely right the pop culture in japan reflects the like supernatural world that right. you know is is in the kind of traditional religions and which is why you know in certain respects it, calling it an atheist country it can be very misleading and mm. um, but you asked at the start you know if there were connections between uh, or that there might be connections between my work or research on east asian religions and the kind of critiques i have of the intellectual dark world yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and general conspiracy theorists online yeah. and one connection that I do see is, so I initially w went to a university in London called SOAS, School of Oriental and African Studies. Okay. And I, I was in, in part motivated because of an interest in Buddhism, a personal interest in, you know, kind of it as a, a system of philosophy or this, the kind of the stereotypical Western view that you would imagine when you hear someone say they're interested in Buddhism. Right? Mm, okay, okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. But <laughs> when I went to the university and I, I chose, I actually uh, took a gap year and traveled around, but during that year, I made a choice between going to study law and, uh, uh, yeah, at, at university or do study of religions at, at SOAS, this like slightly weird university with like far left leanings. Okay, okay. And, and traveling for a year made me decide, okay, the, the, the good thing to do with my life would be to focus on the like study of religion rather than the <laughs> lucrative law career. Uh, but but I when I started then, my image of Buddhism, you know, I'd read a lot about Buddhism from kind of Western sources, and I, I part of the thing I did for the gap year was travel around all these meditation centers, a bit like you know Sam Harris's story, except I didn't have a trust fund where you know I wigged out for you know a number <laughs> yeah. of years and traveled around India. I I was just in America and Canada for a year, like traveling around, but. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I, I so I had some experience with you know meditation practice and all this, and was interested in Buddhism. Then I went to university and started studying like the history of Buddhism and East Asian cultures, and and I very quickly realized that like my image was a 
fantasy that mm. was and not just a fantasy that was built on you know uh ignorance but rather uh, an image that was particularly marketed to western people uh in order to uh in order to sell buddhism in a sense as a modern religion and and there were good motives for that because there was the the you know christian missionaries were were trying to import christianity right. and and part of this was a pushback from okay. buddhist countries to kind of say no we we are modern too mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. actually maybe we are more modern than mm. you you can be and, an atheist so, too like you can come on join yes me. yeah so the interesting thing is you have these these kind of guys who are proselytizing buddhism in the west and in their english language correspondence there or you know their promotional they're talking about buddhism in a very specific way but then when they go back to talk to their uh, domestic internal audience mm-hmm. they speak in a very different way often mm. very sectarian and oh. they're promoting their particular sex version of buddhism as the like this is the correct view of buddhism and it and it had a really big impact like it still is the dominant view that you know buddhism is not a religion it's a philosophy and all these things and so the the part of connecting that to the idw criticism and all that mm. is that i had this nice you know comforting image about and and maybe like a self-serving image oh i'm interested in something a bit unique and uh something that gives you uh i don't know like a self-satisfied feeling but then i had my illusions shattered and i found the actual traditions and the kind of the history and the complexity much more interesting and much less simple than you know what i had initially set out to find mm. and it, it made me very uh kind of aware that we should look critically at the things that we assume especially if they're comforting and self-serving images that we have and okay yeah so you're so like it, I, mean, oh, I see i see why you're doing it okay i can see why you're like we it might be a stretch No, 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 it's not a stretch. No, 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 it just clicked. (laughs) So you've been through the valley of the the blissful ignorance being kind of shattered. And so you find a responsibility to look back and be like, no, let's, it's not as simple as you're making it seem. Yes, I mean, I think my general stance, even in my academic writing and stuff, is just, it's not that simple. That's a fair, you know, summary or there's, like monocausal explanations don't work very well and but i would say that you know even before that experience with the kind of study of religion stuff was and uh and the image of buddhism being shattered the i was already interested in skepticism and and science and those kind of uh like critical approaches so it wasn't that before that i was you know completely on board with anti-vaccine narratives and you know i i already had an interest in like science and skepticism but the experience at university had still had you know a significant impact that 
okay, even with those kind of interests, you can make big mistakes uh, in reasoning or and and completely understandable because, you know, why would you question if you'd read a bunch of books about uh, popular treatments of Buddhism, you might think that you're well informed about a topic. Same way, if you read lots of intellectual dark web books, you know, I think it's not like that's not giving you any information, right. but I think it's giving you a very kind of partial image. It's a perspective. That, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, um, but I can see how people can read, you know, like five or six, uh, you know, of these books, like talking about critical thinking and the need for like good faith arguments and all this. And then their view is I get all that and I'm able to, you know, I'm able to apply that. And like, in my experience, even the people extolling those virtues are far from able to apply it regularly. So, oh well, yeah. practicing what you preach is a hard thing, sir. <laughs> well, well, yes, yeah. it is so hard. Like that's it's not even I fall short. You know, we all do, but it, it's it's a sort of willingness to hear um, critique and criticism. Uh, mind you, I know they have these individuals have so much flying at them. That it's hard to be like, who yeah. is good faith criticism? But what 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 I'm getting from you, and it's kind of going back to your original connection, was you need to look at things from many perspectives. Mm. You need to look at things from the original source. You need to look at them from how others view it. You need to kind of just look at how all the different perspectives that you can are, are mm. really important. Like look at criticism, look at people, look at the pros. Look at people who are their, yes. you know, their their followers. Look at the people who are their antagonists, and then make right. the decision. And, yeah, and a lot of this to me is, you know, so when people see me criticize the, you know, people in the intellectual dark web or or uh, or right right wing people in general, they often assume that like my worldview is. It's like I'm a. They see anthropologist in my Twitter bio, and then they say, "Oh, he's a woke anthropologist who, you know, just of course he wouldn't believe this." And I mean, Sam Harris kind of went off in his podcast about on that assumption uh, when based on like an interaction we had. Uh, oh um, wow! I, but he, I get why people would think that, but. The, my background was, like I said, I was in social anthropology, but I left social anthropology to go to more quantitative cognitive anthropology, which social anthropologists generally see as like the devil or, you know, not a not an appropriate way to approach the issues. Mm. So social anthropologists in general don't like my field very much. Mm. And I left the social anthropology field in part because I didn't like the amount of uh, kind uh, the the things which me you know which the so-called squared people are complaining about in a sense that there's there's a dominant paradigm that mm -hmm. the the general problem is neoliberal globalization and and that not not I wouldn't you know postmodern neo-Marxism or whatever. I don't think that's the best way to frame it, but but certainly there is you know a focus on Foucault and power relations and that and it wasn't that I find that was all wrong. I just felt kind of that the critique they make about it being 
not all there is to say is correct. Mm -hmm. Now, so I left and joined, you know, the kind of cognitive anthropology and now in social psychology area. But, but when people see criticisms, they assume that it's coming from, you know, an ideological critical theory background. And I, I've written articles that are uh, quite critical of critical theory. Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. So the, the, the kind of baseline assumption is, is wrong, that, that the motivation is just, you know, this kind of uh, tribal policing of academic borders. Or it, it's more that the kind of thinking that I see embodied there is is to me very similar as you know I've been waffling on about on Twitter to the critiques that I had about conspiracy theorists or uh, alternative medicine movements and a lot of the things that I learned uh, from academia but also just you know from skepticism or looking at things from different perspectives leads me to be very critical of the narratives and the techniques that uh, the folks of the intellectual dark web and their, you know, cohorts, their, yeah, their cohorts <laughs> are pushing because because it feels to me that they aren't doing that. And uh, yeah, so maybe again, I lost my breath, but but basically just to say that I, I completely agree with you that you have to look at it from different angles and that this oh yeah this was the point i wanted to make so the hyper focus that you should never consider the context of you know guilt by association who someone talks to is is irrelevant and it's just a uh, like way to besmirch someone's name that they would be willing to talk to people if you only talk to people that agree with you how will you ever learn and this kind of thing that to me is always missing the point. Not always, because like people do do that, but it, it there's no reason that you can't consider that information alongside considering someone's argument, alongside you know looking at the evidence that they presented and technically critiquing it. But contextual information isn't irrelevant. And when I hear the people who complain about that kind of thing or complain about mind reading on podcasts, they engage in that completely themselves. It's the blind they just spot. Don't yeah, yeah. Yeah, they talk about, you know, motivations and why people are doing these things and what are they lacking in their life that makes them, you know, interested in wokeism or this kind of thing. But they don't see that as mind reading. And uh, to me, it looks very, very similar, but one is just not called mind reading or the, yeah. So it's people often respond when I'm talking about, you know, the context of this person was like, say, Eric Weinstein promoting Cernovich uh, recently and saying, you know, well, he's just sharing, you know, information and, and so on. Why don't you take apart like the specifics of what they're sharing? But the credibility of Cernovich matters because his identity is, you know, a, a conspiracy theorist who doesn't do good research, who is ideologically motivated and in general is just 
pushing out self-aggrandizing conspiracies. So it, that, that context matters if someone says, well, look at this guy's take. This is a good source for, right. you know, during the pandemic. Mm. Right. So it, it does. It does matter. Yeah, it's, it's kind of taking it case by case, taking in all the mm. facts and making decisions where maybe I guess it's hard because it feels like it's cherry picking. Like, well, we'll take this one and it's OK if they have the guilt by association, but we won't hold the guilt by association to that one. It, it does feel like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. But then but but you have to sometimes make judgment calls for particular situations well i i think you just i actually think you have to be consistent so okay. you apply it oh so wait that's the opposite of what i, yeah, <laughs> I thought it was a case so, it, so it's not good to have a case by case no i think that you so in my case for example if i see someone interview someone right like that uh, say interview stefan molyneux okay okay i my my immediate thought is kind of like that is likely a bad decision right because because of what he puts out but what people say in those interviews and what they say afterwards that matters yeah so people always say you know that oh there's no nuance to the you know crit criticisms they just see this person spoke to that person and that's that's all that matters but there's plenty of people, for example, that Sam Harris has interviewed, who, like Dia Khan, right, who interacts with extremists relatively frequently and, and interacted with Sam Harris, right? Uh, and she's quite relatively, you know, far to the left. But she didn't afterwards get slammed as, oh, you're enabling Sam Harris or the historian who talked about, you know, white nationalism. So it, I don't think it's the case that it's just if you ever speak to people that that's all that matters. What matters is what you said. And okay. and yes, it matters the patterns of the people that you, you know, engage with regularly. If your guests are Sargon of Akkad, Cernovich, Stefan Molyneux, it's not non-diagnostic information of what your worldview is likely to be. Hmm. But but it still does matter what you say. I I just think that the those standards are applied inconsistently, not just by critics of the intellectual dark web, but by them themselves. And and my general hang up with that whole group as a collective is that they are inconsistently applying standards in a hypocritical manner. That's that's the like that and the conspiracy mongering are the two things that annoy me the okay. most. Okay, I have actually just been thinking about this just in general in my own life. the 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 only thing is, and I mean, you could answer ways to curb this. Are we not all hypocrites at one time or we, another? Sure, sure, and we're all biased, and we're all uh, subject to you know. In, like in-group pressures and conformity biases mm. and availability heuristics. There's nobody that isn't susceptible to those things. Mm. But what doesn't follow from that, uh, admitting that, is that therefore everyone is equally taking steps to avoid that influencing okay. uh, what they do. And 
there's it's one thing to be aware of that and another to try and take steps to combat that and it it's so like i don't think anybody could should reasonably claim that they're always you know hyper rational they never engage in things which are group dynamics or they don't feel any peer pressure if you think that you're wrong uh, you you do have those biases and they affect what you do but it, but i often see a lot of people appeal to that as if acknowledging that everybody has biases and that these affect things that means that everybody is just doing the same thing and that's not true you you can take steps to avoid it you can make efforts to not be inconsistent and apply things you know selectively um and but but how and, when you have and, such a big audience and so many people sending and i'm not trying to i'm just i'm just being like devil's advocate no here. no no Please. and and i honestly you listen to more of their content than i do yeah you use listen to the times two speed okay i do have questions about that but i but how do you take steps when you have such so much coming at you isn't it easier to just be like no they're all wrong i'm fine as opposed to like sure like because you could totally like oh i'm they're all right I am all yeah. wrong. Like, as opposed to like, okay, I guess I'm gonna have to like really filter. Well, maybe what this person said, maybe like, or how do you choose? How how do they that's, get the proper criticism? That I mean, that's a very good point, right? And there's as obviously, I mean, there's this concept right of audience capture where people get feedback for you know positive reinforcement for some certain kinds of message, and then they whether they know it or not, they you know do it more. We all do that, I think, to some extent. Uh, but but it can be more extreme, like in the case of Ruben or mm. something, right? Mm. Uh, whether that reflects his underlying views or not, it's clear that he's pandering to you know a, a certain worldview. Right. Um, but but and I think that you're right that like there's always going to be this flood of criticism when you reach a certain level of popularity. Mm. People will hate you. You know, just because you don't share their specific view of politics, that will always happen. So if you're as famous as Sam Harris, and I mean, like, you know, he's famous to a certain extent, but he's certainly famous enough that he he has people that just hate him. Yeah, and yeah. just hate and just send the politics. here's why you're bad always. Yeah. Yes, and it, it, you know, I mean, they have reasons for that, but like, I think in certain respects, it could. You could a lot of it. It doesn't mean that all the criticisms of him are in good faith or mm -hmm. uh, correct. And but that so if you have that kind of wave coming at you, I of course get that makes you defensive mm -hmm. and it makes you you know searching out people who are charitable to you. Of course, that's like a natural reaction. But but what so. Say, let's take Sam Harris, because I'm kind of familiar with him, right? And if you look at his Reddit, for example, the, I mean, people would say it was took over at some point, but like, it's highly critical of his content. And it, oh. it's maybe, uh, I mean, he's talked about it being like a forum dedicated to hating him. But <laughs> from my reading, that's not what happened. There are people that hate him on there, but there's a lot of people 
that liked his early content or you know liked him at a certain stage in their life and then they followed him and as it's gone on they've become critical of him because of the all of the points that people point out about you know uh tribalism and all these kind of things and uh downplaying the roles of white nationalism but being very very clear that we should be concerned about you know uh extremism in islam but the i think it's not going to be a pleasant thing to see and there's no way that you're going to be perfect at it but when you have this like feedback loops where you can see there's like these critiques and i think there's a way where you can see a critique that where the person hates you and they're never going to say that anything you do is right and then you can see a critique where the person just disagrees fundamentally with what you're doing and lays out the points and makes it clear or they keep highlighting your hypocrisy and it's not a matter about being respectful you know some people the way they communicate is harsher and some less so it's more in how well argued the content is and i see lots of people making very well argued criticism of sam okay and his reaction is usually to pile it into the group that hate him that okay. you know unreasonably hate him and demonize him and unless the disagreement is minor so if it's something where somebody you know basically likes him interpersonally or or agrees with him about you know a lot of things then he can accept you know some degree of good faith criticism but when it comes from people that hold like strongly diverging views he he just seems to immediately assume that it's you know motivated by an personal animus and like uncharitable takes okay and in in the case with me and lots of the people I speak to, I see them assume that, that I hate them, you know, that they think, oh, you just want to make me look stupid or, you know, you 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 personally have a vendetta against me. Mm. And it's, it's not the case. Right. It's their content that they're putting out. In many cases, I'm sure they're very nice people, you know, interpersonally. Right. If I talk to them, I'm sure we'll get on. So, yeah, I, that's a very long-winded answer, too. No, 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 I like it. No, no, And you've said some positive stuff about Sam even recently. Like, I've seen you say yeah. say positive stuff about him. So it's not that you, you kind of just call a spade a spade. Like, it's, it feels like, <laughs> yes. it's, like, depending on who, like, you're like, oh, yeah, this one, this one week, it's uh, some good points from this this one, and maybe some not so good points from this one so so that does lead me to my next question why why do you dedicate the, the universes to coming the amount of time yeah, and even on question. times two even if you listen to it on this on like two on the podcast times two like speeding up for their voices how why do you put that amount of time into listening to these guys uh podcasts and then just be critical of them and again not always but often you're critiquing sure what they're saying. Yeah, yeah. That's a perfectly legitimate point. Um, and and there has to be an element of like a deep personality flaw and self-masochism <laughs> in, in But I'm I'm sure that's that's like somewhere in the mix. Maybe that's you know the Catholic penitent in me. <laughs> Oh, I'm gonna have a little Catholic jokes in here. Okay. This, this is this is my no. I left Catholicism, but right. I, I can't leave. Well, that you can't element. really like but, 
like leave it forever in your yeah in your my scourging myself but <laughs> okay. that, that's not fair to them it's not that painful often but uh so okay the my you know this is me interpreting my own motivation so like there's a lot of self-serving biases and stuff there but generally speaking this this isn't a new thing for me. Okay. So back before the intellectual dark web was, you know, a thought in Eric Weinstein's mind, uh, and like Barry Weiss was putting pen to paper. <laughs> for, for, I guess since my mid-teens, I like, like I said, interested in skepticism and that kind of thing. I consumed a lot of content from Psy advocates, alternative medicine advocates, uh, global warming denial people, as, as lots of people on the internet, you know, did uh, like engaged in those debates on forums and that kind of mm -hmm. thing. But but I was always interested in the psychology of the those people and those communities because it often seemed to me that they one that they're not all just you know evil bad people or that kind of thing everybody thinks they're doing you know good uh, there's exceptions but like generally speaking people have positive self images of themselves um and i i was interested in what is the reasoning that leads to these conclusions or you know how is it that they can think that hiv doesn't cause aids and promote that when it's going to cause, you know, when it demonstrably can cause massive harm and, oh, or yeah. like anti-vaccine children. And, and understanding that psychology is, remains extremely interesting to mm -hmm. me. And it, so it, I can find blogs from, you know, like 13 years ago where I listening to a side podcast and giving feedback like that on a like blog okay. randomly. So Twitter to me is just a different uh, like outlet for for that kind of activity that I was already doing. And it, like I think the cliche way of saying it is I like to understand, you know, the people that I disagree with and their uh, worldviews. But it, it is true, and I also think it's valuable for uh, kind of keeping critical thinking sharp, especially if you have some degree of sympathy with people's views. I mean, I don't have that for like HIV and AIDS denialism or okay. this kind of, but I do have critiques of, you know, the, uh, the, the kind of extreme left, and uh, like liberal dogmas such as they exist. Like, so in many respects, the Quillette or intellectual dark web could appeal to me if they did what they say they do. And okay. the fact that they do what, you know, what they're marketing makes it interesting to me because I, I would potentially be a sympathetic audience but instead, I just find it, you know, uh, well, as as you note, like worthy of criticism. Um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that, and and that's it. So it isn't it isn't a new thing, and uh, to some to some extent, it's like 
Twitter, in a way, is therapeutic. Uh, you know, not in many ways. It's very maddening, and uh, mm. like the you know, you can get caught up in outrage cycles. But in my case, I often feel okay. I, I listen to this. I have some thoughts. I'd like to get them out of me, and then you know, Move that's on. it. And yeah. of course, the better thing is to write articles uh, and that. But I can Twitter when I'm commuting, and I can't write an article on the train. I have other articles to write, so it's yeah. it's like that. It's kind of you know a uh, like uh, it serves a purpose of kind of letting me get some ideas out of my head, mm -hmm. and it, it isn't a new thing for me. Okay. Uh, so yeah. Well, it, in a way, you wouldn't you wouldn't listen if you didn't care. You know about the things being said, and and you're not like yes. an enemy of the IDW here or anything. You're just you, like you said, you would be you would be for their cause if they did what they said they would do. It's just I feel like it's you know when you the whole Nietzschean quote about like you stare into the abyss and then it kind of stares into you. Like, <laughs> yeah. like you you say. And again, I'm not even saying that any, any one individual of, of the... I, I am going to do a generalization about that space of people. Mm. You, you just, you're like, I want to do better. And, and you can trust me. And I will do it right. And follow me. And like, you know, follow us. Ah. And we will be kind dictators. <laughs> not really. Like, oh, they're not dictators. Mean... But, right? Like, like, they are like, no, we can do it. But then they miss... And they end up doing the things that, like, little onlookers like us, like, looking up, we're like, oh, but I think maybe you're doing the thing that you kind of said you wouldn't and got annoyed at that person for doing. It, it, that's kind of yeah. what I'm getting from you. Yeah. And, and I mean, like, the, I, it's definitely that, like, like you know, an unkind way of saying it would be hypocrisy to, like, to do the thing which you're criticizing others of doing. But there's, there's like a certain element of it which is just uh, a deep frustration with, uh, like, people presenting that they are being, you know. Uh, revolutionary and uh, kind of deeply critical mm. when they're not and like what they're so like recently with Eric Weinstein he he very much presents himself as you know kind of a revolutionary thinker who's you know trying to solve problems and but to me it's it sounds exactly the same as you know conspiracy theorists I've heard for 20 years uh, it's just like a slightly different spin on it, and he, he's he's good in in amongst that category. Uh, but but the it isn't some new revolutionary uh, like approach to things. I mean, it's 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 basically talking about the Illuminati almost, and you know. But people wouldn't like that because no, it's the distributed idea suppression complex. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly don't understand most of. Eric's tweets, so I just kind of scroll past. So I don't, I, 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 it's, I kind of am, I came from a space where I saw the IDW first through Jordan Peterson and the ideas, like the kind of more ideas space versus the politically controversial space. Like I, I caught the YouTube videos on his lectures, you know, and then found mm. these other intellectuals 
also saying some cool, interesting things. And then, oh, I joined Twitter and like, oh, I started my YouTube channel, you know? So there's all these things where I kind of started off in one space and, and I and I really like looked up to these people and, and now I feel like it's just more healthy of like, oh yeah, they're people. Like they're just people. But yeah. I haven't super like kept up with a lot of the ideas. Like unless it really like um like you know, falls in my space where I'm like, oh I definitely have an opinion about that like when Brett was talking about. Um, like Christians, can you please get rid of your, you know, beliefs in <laughs> Jesus and his the magic of Jesus and and I, again, I, that was more like a, oh, the, like a, I really just, oh, I don't, oh, that's not what it is. And, you know, like me and my <laughs> cohorts were like, um, I'm, part yeah. of, I'm part of this group called Bridges of Meaning on, um, on, on Discord. And it was funny, the little side conversations going on there that was also going on Twitter. But like, yeah, I, I, but I know nothing against the guy. I still am fine. Mm please come on my podcast and we can discuss this, Eric. Or I mean, Brett. <laughs> but, but I just was like, oh, no, like, that's actually not, like, a, but he got way more hate than, I know, I was pretty nice. I was like, oh, actually, that's not what we think, you know, but then people were like, how dare you? But, like, he was really, you know, certain people who follow him are like, that is sacred, don't you dare, you know? But, I, and he yeah. listened. Oh, actually, that's something, that is, he actually listened. He didn't say, oh, I agree with you, but he's like, I've learned a lot. And you don't get that well, a lot yeah. from them, you know, from that group. So I feel like that one was like a situation where maybe it was, it, did you see that bit? Did you, do you know what I'm talking I about? I didn't see that. And yeah. I, I like, I think hell, the position that you describe of like having healthy levels of skepticism towards the, the people is the appropriate response I'm like, like, oh i agree with disagree. that I, I don't agree with that like i still like you like i still like all of them you know like as people but and you yeah. can kind of just be like oh like i don't agree but i don't always write only stuff that i'm like oh well, i really gotta write something there but like but i mean i'm no, not, but that, I'm not I, listening to all their podcasts at I two times speed like you are so you can like people and be critical of them totally. I think, like i mean it's hard of course because people don't react very nice well to criticism for understandable reasons but yeah. uh but I, I still think, you know, you can generally respect people and like be critical when they deserve it. But in the specific case with Brett uh, and like talking about, you know, Christianity and that kind of thing. So the weird thing with Brett is that he part of the reason I even started paying attention to Eric's content was because I noticed Brett talking about evolution and that's an area I have an interest in. And he often links his kind of ideas to religion, right? Okay. As a evolutionary system. Right, and yes, I, I remember that, yeah. Yes, and I'm active in the field, a field called the cognitive science of religion, okay. which is where a lot of that work goes on. And like with Brett, it feels a bit like Uncanny Valley where, you know, he's saying things which sort of sound like the, like normal things within that field, but then he just adds in these kind of like extra bits, okay. which are highly speculative or like completely crazy. And then, <laughs> okay. uh, you know, like group selection for the Nazis and uh, like the Jewish phenotype and all that, like. I didn't see that. You went, when he was on stage talking about that with uh, the German phenotype, uh, uh, 
uh, or tribes. I can't remember how he he worded it, but you could see Richard Dawkins' eyes almost pop out of his head. And you know, Dawkins is not someone who thinks that we shouldn't apply an evolutionary framework, but he was kind of like, "What the are you talking about?" And okay, the okay. Uh, I I find in the same way with uh, Brett and Jordan Peterson and Eric that. And, and maybe other parts of the intellectual dark web to different degrees, but they have these bits which are fine, where they describe some theory that exists mm -hmm. and they relate it to something. Sometimes unnecessarily, but okay, they're describing a theory which you know exists. But then they push into that something which is like super speculative or which is their ideology, and it's mixed in as if it's equally as well established as the. You know the 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 established thing, and okay. that to me harmful because okay. people end up with this kind of mishmash of they've got these ideas which are completely legitimate, but they've got it filtered along with uh, like Jordan Peterson's worldview or Brett's like unique take on evolutionary systems, and those people should be aware i mean to some extent they very much enjoy presenting themselves as unorthodox thinkers but it should be clear that that's unorthodox in some of the same ways that you know conspiracy theories are unorthodox or like uh, alternative medicine is unorthodox it okay. isn't just that there's a it's just a you know a debate within the field no it, it, and I, there was a piece on jordan peterson specifically written by one of his mentors. I don't know if you ever seen yeah, that. Yeah, I the guy did. Who yeah, hired. I felt really bad and for Jordan, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was personally very hard to hear, right? Because I mean, he was at his house, and it seemed like they. But one part of that critique that like stuck with me was he, that lecturer, that person who mentored him, uh, went to watch his class, and he critiqued that it was this inspiring, very you know interesting very stimulating not like a normal lecture but he mixed in these like his own personal thoughts and things which are you know the stuff he gets criticized for like dna being represented in ancient uh images or, right yeah yeah at, alongside stuff which is legitimate and it was all mixed together and okay but the like, ancient you know civilization of atlantis could have known about dna come on <laughs> I actually okay. <laughs> no, who knows? Okay, okay. Yes, you're saying. No, the only thing is, like for me, people would say, well, people often seem to say, well, that's just you know, that's that's just a random like coincidence that Jordan Peterson is almost talking about ancient aliens and the, the, like who built the pyramid stuff, but but to me, it isn't this random coincidence. It's the reason the reason that there's overlap is because the way that they approach research and evidence and uh, conspiracies is is similar and it has the same sorts of problems. So other people think there's like it's cherry picking superficial comparisons, but for me, it's a fundamental part problem with the ideology, and that that that's why uh, maybe when Brett says something which on its own is just, you know, okay, maybe he was being speculative and he didn't mean, but when you put it together with the things that he, you know, says over time, it becomes less defensible because it feels like he, 
he isn't updating his, you know, uh, like in the statistical terms, his Bayesian framework remains kind of that he doesn't predict well what's going to cause outrage or or how speculative certain ideas are. And I mean, you see that in the way that they're quite certain that uh, the Weinstein brothers, at least, are quite certain that they deserve Nobel's, Nobel Prizes. That's that's insane. You won't hear that from, you know, normal researchers without, like, very good reason. And and yet they're, they're very clear that their research is Nobel Prize worthy. That That's a problem, you know, in thinking. It, it almost seems like if only there was a, like, a, a kind of asterisk that they would put up, you know, to be like, these are my thoughts, by the way. Um, I, I just, well, I wonder if, if it was presented like, so the research or the data or the, the running theory is this. However, I have some ideas here. This is me talking, not the research. Like if they made it a very, very clear distinction, would that make a difference mm. for it, you? It would be, it would be better, but it, it's, I mean, I think that would be like a massive step forward but it's still the issue is usually in the reasoning that they get i mean i'm fine i'm actually completely fine and this is something that comes up on twitter often that people seem to mistake when i'm criticizing something that i'm saying people can't say that people can say whatever they want or believe whatever they want but then people can criticize them for it that's my position so you know people being free to speculate about you know the the elites that are controlling society and preventing uh, like Eric and Brett from getting Nobel prizes, fine to for them to speculate about that. But they deserve criticism for that. And if they put the ideas out there, they 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 will receive it and should expect that. Um, and it doesn't mean that you know you're being suppressed or whatever. It's just if you say crazy things, or you know, very extreme things that people will push back, and right. uh, that that seems to me like a healthy, normal thing to happen. Uh, and in not some cases, of- they adjust a little, depending. Like I said, like Brett adjusted with the whole Jesus yes. magic thing. Like he he did. Um, he did, but could, in that case, like you talked about earlier, that can also lead to audience capture right because right if brett got an audience which i would say he has that has you know a significant right skew and might be more crisp or more religious than you know say if it was liberal atheist audience or even sam harris is an audience or whatever yes although you know the same problem emerged there because when he found out he had like a significant portion of trump supporters he couldn't understand oh why Oh, then, but, okay, but I guess I'm making assumptions then. Okay. But no, I think, I mean, it's a perfectly reasonable assumption that, like, one of the well, most well-known atheists would have a significant following of atheists. Yeah! But, <laughs> but I I don't know how he feel to miss, you know, his popularity amongst the, like, right, at least center-right. And it, it that speaks to a certain, like, lack of awareness about, you know, what other people can see quite clearly. Right. Um, and so Brett modulating his opinion, like 
I, I maybe I'm being a bit contradictory here, okay. uh, but you know, aren't we all? The, <laughs> it, 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 I think it is a good thing when people modulate opinions or you know take criticism on board. Like imagine now as we tweeted someone, uh, and it turns out the guy might have, well, seems to be in a picture with a guy doing the Nazi salute, and I think there's good reason that he's like a far right guy. So he took the picture away. Okay. But, you know, you can talk about maybe he should have done that before he tweeted it, but at least he did, you know, afterwards he was like, okay, I'm going to take it away because this guy, I don't, I need to check into him. Mm. But the, I think that deserves, you do deserve some recognition for, you know, like, okay, I'll, I'll do something in response to criticism. Right. But that also comes with the, like what we talked about earlier, that you have to separate like reactionary outrage from these aren't people making legitimate points. And I think people did have legitimate points in the case of Brett. So it was good that he modulated it, but it isn't the case that that's always the the way it should go. You know, if Ruben tweeted out something that was critical of, I mean, he won't, but if he tweeted out something that was critical of Trump, he would right. get pounced on by his You're right, audience. because of his, also that's what you, yeah, the whole audience capture thing. Yeah, mm. that's hard to know. Like, oh, see, they changed. You're like, no, no, their audience just got mad at them. So that's where I guess you almost have to do... I've seen some of them, some some say this, where it's like, oh, they're both sides are mad at me. The right and the left. Yeah. You and I, but... we're little people. We don't know. Like, I mean, I feel like, oh, man, they, they need to change and this. But it's hard when you are that big. I mean, that big to me. Like, I mean, and I know they're not like no, no, no. in the millions. But... I completely... I completely agree, and I have no like delusions of grandeur about how you know m how niche my position and interests are in the online space. Like, uh, I think I have a healthy level of self-awareness right. uh, of you know how niche my interests are. But the what I think with like people that have you know a quarter of a million followers, over a million followers, that what happens there is your responsibility becomes more, not less. And in Okay, case, I see what you mean, yeah, yeah. In the case of like, say Sam, I mean, again, he's just an easy person because I consume a lot of his content, but mm. he he had this point where uh, he mentioned on a couple of podcasts that uh, about Stefan Molyneux, right? And he generally when he mentioned them he would say you know mm, people are asking me to have him on i don't really know i haven't done any research into him i hear some bad things but you know i hear bad things about me so maybe it's not fair and he he brought this up over the course of two years uh, or maybe longer on various podcasts saying you know kind of thinking back and forth about this guy and and kind of not endorsing in any way mm. but also you know saying look i don't know what this guy and like maybe there's uh like reasons for the criticism now some people would look at that and say well that's look he's been responsible he didn't invite him on for like being a guest and like set aside all the stuff that happened with christian Pitgalucci and you know editing the podcast all that before that but the bit that always gets me with like Sam, and it's a common thing, is why didn't he have an opinion after years of, and this guy being the second most requested, he said at one point, this is the second most requested guest after Jordan Peterson. And like, why didn't he spend, you know, an, an evening or a couple of evenings 
watch some of his content, read some of the uh, critiques of him, mm. and, and look into him. And of course, you know, these people are busy, they have books to write, they have podcasts to write, and so on. But years, we're talking years, and not having opinion. And that strikes me as like irresponsible, or at the very, and a, a clear example is, Sam had several podcasts where he discussed the content and the meaning of the Christchurch Shooters bomb, uh, Manifesto and mm. like what it signals about. But he continuously said, well, I haven't read it, but I think it's like this. And it was months later and he was, you know, or he was kind of like debating with uh, the historian, that, uh, Kathleen something, Bigelow maybe, but uh, discussing about what it means. And he was saying, you know, well, but we can't really tell because there's shit posting content. And, and like the guy obviously wasn't radicalized by Candace Owens. But Sam hadn't took, you know, the hour or like 40 minutes it would take to read that document. And if you read that document, it's not ambiguous what the ideology is. Yes, there's some things about like eco-fascism and stuff, but it's obviously hardcore white nationalism mm. it, the title is it replacement so mm. it's this like lack of research or you know willingness to venture an opinion but not willingness to put in the effort to uh, kind of back up that opinion and then retreating to well i'm just giving uncomfortable ideas and like i'm i'm challenging the dogma but if you want to do that you have to put in the work to say like oh i I've done the research on this and I disagree because of this. But I, I was like, in that case, Sam talks about terrorism a lot. And at mm -hmm. that point he was talking about, you know, white nationalism frequently because he was being criticized for not covering it. So it's, it just bewilders me that you wouldn't spend time to read a manifesto, but you will venture public opinions on it. And it, it right. seems, like I said, irresponsible. Uh, with great power comes mm. great responsibility, I suppose, is the, the takeaway from this. So, okay, I think that, I think this is a good, a good space to uh, wrap up. Sure, <laughs> wrap sure. Up up. Um, <laughs> so do you have any, um, like, papers or any, I don't know, books or any anything you'd like to promote? <laughs> Your Twitter account? Uh... <laughs> I, my Google Scholar has my publications, but okay. they, the, okay. yeah, I, I, I have just overdue publications and books that I need to write. So this is why, you know, the critique of the intellectual dark web is my, uh, like, escape from when I need a break from writing, which right. is uh, like my actual work. Uh, so the, you're suggestion to you know connect them uh, is why i was like oh no oh like, right you're like yeah. no no they're very separate in my they're mind to some extent but, but but there are connections so yeah i i don't have anything clearly to pimp i okay. have a twitter account oh yeah that's, i'll, I'll link it then <laughs> yeah well you know yeah. i i i really like i said you your critiques are very fair-minded and and again people could like they're fair in the sense that people could still disagree with them or agree, but you, you're not attacking. You're like, Oh, here's why I don't think this is actually the case. And here's some I, things to back them up. So 
Yes, I mean, I think I generally, of course, I'll accept, you know, the Prius, but I would say that, like, they certainly feel that it's attacking. And there is a sense in which my criticism is pretty harsh often. And, like, I, I think justly so, but I certainly understand why they see it as, you know, right. So you get, you get it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's good as long yeah. as you're self-aware. That's all we're asking for, <laughs> for them as well as us being self-aware. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, thanks so much yes. for chatting, Chris. I so appreciate the time you gave me today. So thanks for that, for coming on. No problem. It was, it was fun. <laughs>